0: this morning that will uh, be several months at, at least, and this morning we're just looking at uh, at the introduction, the very beginning, that first little paragraph there in your Bible, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Um, it'll definitely be helpful for you to ha- have a Bible open in front of you and, and follow along. There's ESV Bibles that are on the table right outside the auditorium here if you need to grab one of those to, to have a copy of that if you'd like the ESV in particular since that's what I'm preaching out of. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And there's a bare bones outline on the back of the worship guide there. If you want to keep an eye on that as, as we move along, write anything down that, that you think will be helpful for you. Uh, the the way that we evaluate a message, you know, when anybody's bringing us a message, oftentimes it's, it's determined by how we think about the messenger. In fact, that's always part of it. You know, we, we evaluate a message by what we think about the messenger. So you can think about negative examples of this. If you were meeting a doctor for the first time, which I did this past week, so I got a primary care doctor was a good thing, and I walk in, let's say that doctor had come in and he's gonna listen to my heart with his stethoscope, but he puts his stethoscope on my knee instead of putting it on my chest because that's where he thinks my heart is. okay, I'm probably gonna leave. I'm probably not going to go go back to that doctor. You want to think much about that guy's medical advice or, or think about if you're a student, yeah you know, in an English class, your English teacher walks in and she says she says um how are everyone doing this morning? You probably have some questions about that English teacher, right? If the introduction isn't even grammatically correct, or if you take your daughter to her first basketball practice and you see the coach dribbling the basketball with both hands at the same time. Those sorts of things undercut the message that the person has when the messenger seems to to be off in that way. The, The credibility of the messenger determines the credibility of the message, at least in part. And this is why Paul begins the letter to the Galatian churches the way he does. So hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, we're going to learn something about the messenger of Galatians in this passage, and we're going to learn something about the message of Galatians, which is is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul has a clear purpose for the beginning of his letter. Uh, So the book of Galatians, almost more than any other New Testament book, is one sustained argument. So if you sit down and you read the book in full, which would be a great thing to do. It's not going to take you long to do it. It's going to be an encouraging thing. Just to turn off your phone, get away from distractions, read the book in full. What you'll find is it's different from most other New Testament books. Most other New Testament books are kind of dealing, there might be one overarching theme, but there's sort of lots of sub arguments, lots of different things the author is getting at. Well, the book of Galatians, it really is one sustained argument. So, just a a little bit of background that'll be helpful that the churches in this region, Galatia, they were being infiltrated by false teachers people that were teaching a a false gospel. And and here's what they were saying. They were saying the way to become God's child, the way to become justified of our sins, to be counted as innocent in God's eyes, the way to do that was to place faith in Christ plus get circumcised in particular and fulfill a few other commands from the Old Testament. So in other words, the, the way to be saved, the way to be justified was faith plus works. That's what these false teachers were saying in these churches in Galatia. But what Paul is going to teach is that that is a fake gospel. That is a gospel that cannot save. So the book of Galatians is Paul making that argument from start to finish. He's he's re-explaining the real gospel and he's explaining why this fake gospel that those false teachers are teaching, why that one can't save. And so it makes sense that he begins the letter the way that he does. So he's he's reminding the Galatian churches who he is and and why he has authority to speak on these things. And he's reminding them about why the real gospel is such good news. It's not something that they want to turn away from. So in these first five verses, he's focusing on the messenger and he's focusing on the message. Now, we never want to interact with God's word like it's just information for our heads. It's easy to do. We don't want to do that. God intends it to transform us. So with that in mind, how does God intend to to transform us with the introduction in Galatians? What what does he want us to do with these truths? Well, at least two main things. And that's the way we'll look at the passage this morning. So first, first thing he wants us to do, don't ever think the Bible is anything less than God's word. That's the first thing we're going to see from this passage. And then second, see this world as something you need saving from the two things i think the main things we're going to see here so look again at who the author of this letter is verse one we're told there it's paul an apostle now that word apostle just means one who is sent an apostle is somebody who somebody gives a message to them and sends them to take that message to somebody else paul's delivering a message on behalf of another person verse one goes on to tell us who it is that had sent paul Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul has been sent out by Jesus Christ. And we read about this, at least the beginning of him being sent out in the book of Acts. So you probably remember this in Acts 9, when Paul, whose birth name was Saul. So he's persecuting Christians. He's finding Christians and then he's arresting them, locking them up, seeking to persecute them. Remember, he's, he's walking down the road to Damascus, looking to do more of this, persecuting Christians, and Jesus literally shows up to him. And Jesus saves him, and Jesus employs him, puts him in his service to preach the gospel. So this is Acts chapter 9, verse 4. And falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Jesus saves Paul, and then he puts Paul in his service to go and proclaim the gospel to non-Christians. So that's who Paul is, and, and he's the author of this book to the Galatians. And this is probably no surprise, you know, that, that we're in a book that was written by Paul. If you're familiar with the Bible, you probably know this, but about a quarter of the New Testament is is written written by paul and and this letter is most likely the earliest of his letters in the new testament we think it was written around 48 a.d long long time ago so what that means is that the content of the letter that you're holding in your lap is about one thousand nine hundred and seventy five years old which is crazy and that's the letter that we're looking at in god's providence that we're still reading and and we're reading it this morning so This letter is written by Paul. Verse two tells us who he's writing to. He's writing to the churches of Galatia. Now, if you look at a map today, you won't find that region, Galatia. It's it's a region that doesn't exist anymore. But in the first century, it was uh, the name of a region in modern day Turkey. And it was a a group of a bunch of different cities. And we're told in Acts 13 and Acts 14 that, that Paul takes the gospel to those cities. Early on in his ministry, his first missionary journey, and so you'll recognize the names of these cities. So Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe in particular. There's a few helpful things to know about these cities. that will be significant as, as we move through the letter in particular. So first of all, they were fairly wealthy, at least compared to, to other cities in that day and age. Probably part of the reason why down in chapter 1, verse 10 of, of Galatians, Paul mentions the exhortation to remember the poor. So these cities were pretty well off. And one reason they were well-off is because they were big fans of the Roman emperor. They even worshipped the Roman emperor alongside the other Greek gods. So the emperor was pretty pleased with them and would would do things that kind of would set up these cities for success. But what that means was these cities were full of idolatry. It was emperor worship. Again, they're worshipping these other Greek gods. That brought with it a host of other sins because a lot of times sexual sins were connected with the sin of idolatry worshipping these other gods worshipping the emperor so you might even remember there's an event in Acts 14 when Paul's in Lystra and he heals a guy and then the group they try to worship Paul and Barnabas you might remember what they say they say the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men so they're used to worshipping these other greek gods and they say that you know that that Zeus has come and that these other particular gods have have come down So these are the cities that Paul preaches the gospel to in his first missionary journey. Listen to some of the results that we hear about in Acts 13 and 14. This is what happened in Pisidia. So Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching Christ in the Jewish synagogue. And we're told as Paul and Barnabas went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So that's what's happening in the Galatian city of Pisidia and in the surrounding region. Then Paul and Barnabas, they moved on to Iconium, another city in Galatia. And this is what we're told in Acts. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. So there's a lot of people that convert. A lot of non-Christians become Christians as Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel in these cities. And Paul does what he always does in these situations. He's not just satisfied with particular individuals that are saying, "Yes, I've trusted in Christ and become Christians." No, he starts planting churches. He starts gathering these groups of local Christians into local assemblies, and then he appoints pastors to help lead those churches. That's why, in verse two, Paul can address this letters, uh, this letter to the churches of Galatia. He had started churches. And that's because God's plan for his, his children is never that we would just all be a bunch of individual Lone Ranger Christians who are doing our own thing and sometimes voluntarily associating with one another. No, God intends that his children are, are meaningfully connected in local groups under, under the leadership of pastors to do these particular things he calls local churches to do. So God's plan for an unreached region, it's not complete until there's a church with pastors. His plan for a, a, an unreached region is not complete until there's a church with pastors. And that's a good way to judge international missions organizations, a good way to judge international missionaries. Do they understand the significance and the centrality of the local church? Or do they think the point is just to have a bunch of individuals say they've become christians and maybe you discipled them some but then that's it and then you can you can leave we don't want to encourage that kind of missions strategy because that's not god's missions strategy so so paul he he encourages the kind of mission strategy where churches are are planted he plants churches in this region of galatia and once these christians have churches and pastors then paul moves on to preach the gospel in other places that haven't yet heard it. So we see that in Acts 14. He leaves Galatia, then he heads south to preach the gospel in other regions. But when he moves on, he doesn't just totally forget about the churches that he planted that are behind him. No, Paul has this ministry where he's regularly writing letters back to encourage those groups of Christians, to encourage those churches, to instruct them in the faith. So that's what Galatians is. It's a letter that Paul is writing back to these churches that, that he had planted, What Paul makes clear in verse 1 is the real author of Galatians is God. The real author of Galatians is God. And this is our first point in our passage. Don't ever think the Bible is anything less than God's word. Flip flip a few pages over to the beginning of Ephesians to the right, and and let's see what Paul's typical greeting looks like in a letter like this. Because Galatians looks distinct. So let's look at what the typical greeting looks like. Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 1. And they were told, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Okay, that's his normal kind of greeting. If you look at all Paul's greetings in all his New Testament letters, that's typical. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Verbatim, it's almost that in every single letter. Okay, but look back at our passage. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead. It's about twice as long as normal. Now, as a Bible reader, whenever you see something where an author deviates like that, oh, this is different, we always want to press in. There's some reason for it. What is it that he's trying to get to us? What is it he's trying to help us see? This is different. It's twice as long of a greeting when he introduces himself as normal. So why the extended greeting? It's because Paul is stressing a point for the Galatians, and he's, he's stressing that point for us this morning. He's making it clear that even though he is the human author of the letter, the real author is God. Verse 1 again, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. So he's at pains to point out that the message he brings isn't a message that he was sent by a human to deliver. No, it's a message he was sent by God to deliver. It's, it's not a message that men created. As he says it here, it's not from men nor through man. Now, see, Christianity is distinct in this way. Every other religious book was created by men. Every single one, the whole history of human religions, every single one of those other religions, their book was created by men. The Quran was created by men. The Book of Mormon was created by men. The Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism was created by men but the Bible's the lone exception. It wasn't created by men. The Bible was revealed to men. It was created by God. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Look at how Paul puts it down in verses 11 through 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the words that Paul is sending to the Galatians and and the words that God intends for us too, these words are God's words. And probably the reason Paul bears down so hard on this point is because the false teachers who had been coming around the Galatian churches, they were challenging his authority. They were challenging his credibility. They were saying that his message was just his own opinions, just his own inclinations. And people today oftentimes share that same assumption. So if if you talk to your coworkers, your neighbors, your extended family that aren't Christians about the Bible, eventually a lot of those folks, you'll kind of see this sort of thinking that they assume, oh, this is just the opinion of these folks that wrote the Bible, you know, for better or for worse. This is just sort of their instincts, their inclinations. So I remember sitting in in a Bible class in college. I went to a school that said it was a Christian school. It was barely a Christian school, especially not in the religion, and the philosophy department. And I remember a professor saying, okay, these passages that talk about men's and women's roles in the family and in the church, the reason Paul wrote those things is because Paul was never married. He was probably unattractive. This is almost verbatim what this professor was saying. And what that means is he had a chip on his shoulder. He didn't like women. That's why Paul wrote what he did about men's and, and women's roles. So see, the the assumption is that Paul's New Testament letters are just his own thoughts and opinions. It was just a guy who was writing stuff that that he thought. And a lot of people around you probably think that same thing. You know, they might think, yeah, sure, the the Bible, it's it's particularly wise, maybe. It's historically significant. But it's just one other human book. But see, that's not true. That's not true. Paul was the one holding the pen, but the real author was God paul an apostle not from men nor through man but through jesus christ and god the father who raised him from the dead now here's why it's significant that god's the one that wrote this letter and not men the reason it's significant one big reason is because god never changes that's why it's significant that god wrote the bible god never changes in fact that's a big part of what makes god god he's always perfect and he's always been perfect He never needs to change. He never grows. He never develops. He never learns anything. He never gets better at something. This is Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. He's always perfect. He never changes. That means his opinions are always right. It means his word is always right. Now, Now, people's opinions change all the time. That's why it's so silly for people to base their opinions on what is culturally popular, because culture changes all the time. So there's there's opinions today that are super popular that were really unpopular 20 years ago, and vice versa. Opinions today that are really unpopular were very popular 20 years ago. But God's opinions have always stayed the same. So one interesting example, this is so great. Again, thinking, you know, talking about Paul and, and the differences with men and women roles in the family and, and in the church. So in the first century, Jesus's views on women were really liberal, if you can imagine. So the folks, the, the movers and the shakers in the first century, when they saw the way Jesus talked about men's and women's roles, they would point at him and say, liberal. You're too liberal, Jesus, why are you, why do you have female disciples, right? Why are you letting females take part in the ministry in here? Why are you giving your time to them? Remember this was a culture where, I think Pastor Charlie mentioned it maybe last week, women weren't seen as reliable witnesses in the first century. They couldn't testify in court. So in the first century, the way Jesus looked at men's and women's roles, liberal. Is that the way it is today? No. 180 degrees different, right? Today, our culture looks at Jesus and they say, conservative, way too conservative, way too legalistic, 180 degrees different, right? You know what stayed in the same spot the whole time? Jesus. He said the same thing. It's the true thing, right? Cultures come and go. Opinions come and go. God's word is the only thing that stays in the same spot. And that's good news, right? we don't have to worry that the bible will need a revision in a few years you know what's so funny it's it's not just this president it's every president there's always times where somebody will ask the president a question the president will give an answer and then later on in a press briefing they ask the press secretary hey he said this is that what he meant and you see the the press secretary have to scramble and say no no, no that's not what he meant he actually meant the exact opposite of that well everybody knows what's happening right It's the fact that the president's a human. Every president says things that are not super polished or whatever. The press secretary has to come behind them and try to fix it, try to square it away. That's never going to happen with the Bible, right? The Lord says the thing the perfect way every single time. It's always true. He never has to come back and change everything or anything. It never needs a revision. God's word is always perfect. We know that God's word is always effective as well. So Paul points out at the end of verse 1 that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. So that's the God that gives us his word. His power knows no bounds. He has power. His word is effective. The same one who, who raised Jesus' three-day-old dead body from the grave, he he guarantees his word will create and nurture spiritual life in us. So the upshot what we're supposed to do with this, we're always supposed to treat God's word that way. That's what we're supposed to do with what Paul's just told us. Don't ever think the Bible is anything less than God's word. So, so for example, when a coworker is attacking the Bible, you don't have to worry about that criticism. You can engage with it, but it doesn't have to shake you. You don't have to get anxious about that because you know the Bible is God's word. So you don't have to worry about it. When when one of God's commands tells you some particular action or motivation in you is sinful, and you'd much rather just brush it off and pretend like it's not a big deal, don't do that. Remember, the Bible is God's word. When, when you read one of God's promises that in your flesh seems too good to be true, so maybe the promise that we really are freed from sin, and so a sin that is nagging you that you don't think you will ever get past. The Lord actually is growing you in that area and you have the spirit of Christ so that he wants to free you from that particular thing. You can have actual victory there in that area of your life. When you're tempted to doubt that promise, remember the Bible is God's word. It's not just the opinion of men. It's the word of God. Listen, now Paul commends the Thessalonian Christians. He said they were doing a good thing. This is what he says about them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And we should do the same. Verse one again, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead. So never treat the Bible as anything less than God's word. But there's at least one other thing I think the Lord is calling us to do in this passage. And that is to see this world as something you need rescue from. See this world as something you need rescue from. So in his introduction, Paul makes clear who the messenger is. Now he goes on to talk about the message. So look at the rest of his greeting. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, so what is Paul's message? Well, we get, we get this great summary of it in the first few words of verse three. Look back there. Grace to you and peace from God. So Paul's message is the same as the message of the entire Bible, which is that people, people like us, sinners can have peace with God. That's the good news of the gospel. We can have peace with God. Now, now this won't seem like the huge deal that it is until somebody realizes that we don't deserve peace with God. We don't, we don't deserve that. Look over at chapter three, verse 10 of Galatians. This is what Paul says there. Galatians chapter three, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law And do them. Okay. So when he talks about the law, those are God's expectations, those are his commands. And God has given his law to mankind. So he's given us his written word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But, But he's also revealed his will and his character to mankind through creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 talks about that. He's revealed himself in the human conscience. Romans chapter 2, verse 15 talks about that. But see, mankind hasn't accepted God's commands. Mankind hasn't followed God's commands. No, instead, mankind rebelled and cast off God's commands. And that means that mankind deserves wrath. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And like passages like Galatians chapter three, verse 10 talk about that wrath can only be, be avoided by abiding all things written in the book of the law. That's what Galatians chapter three, verse 10 says. So you want to avoid God's wrath? Easy. We'll say simple, simple. Just do everything that's written in the book of the law. That's the way for humans to avoid God's wrath. But, but what that means is for those of us who are, have ever told a lie, we are in trouble. For those of us who have ever been jealous or unrighteously angry or lusted or gossiped or not given God glory that he deserved, if we've done any of those things, even one time, we deserve God's wrath. Well, that's everybody in here. That's everybody out there. Every human, every mere human who's, who's ever lived, that was everybody in the churches of Galatia. So, so how in the world can Paul offer them peace with God? Well, it's because of the first word in verse 3, grace to you. So it's God's grace that makes a way for sinners to have peace with him. That word grace, that just means a gift. This is Christmas time, right? So we get that object lesson as soon as presents go under the tree. That's what grace is. It's a present. It's a gift. But it's a costly gift. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. So the son of God, Jesus Christ gave himself. In other words, he he gave his life. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's pointing back to the events that we saw in the gospel of Luke just in the past few weeks where Jesus was crucified. He gave his life on the cross. That was Jesus giving himself. And he did it for a specific purpose. Paul tells us at the end of verse three, why did he give his life? Who gave himself himself? for our sins so so our sins deserved god's wrath we should have had to turn our lives over because we're sinners we should have had to turn our lives over and and be punished for our rebellion against god but but jesus gave himself for our sins so for those of us here who are christians he suffered and gave his life for our sins he traded in his life so so we wouldn't have to trade in our lives he let god treat him the way that we deserve to be treated And because Jesus lived a perfect life, his life was a perfect sacrifice, which means it paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it's not just that a typical human did this for us. No, it's it's an even bigger deal when we realize who Jesus was. He wasn't merely a man. No, Jesus is God himself. That's who gave his life for us. Paul's already pointed to Jesus's divinity. It's easy to skip over it but look at verse one again paul an apostle not from men nor through man but through jesus christ Okay, so paul sets up a dichotomy he sets up two boxes so i'm not from this group my message wasn't given through this group it was given through this group what are the two groups well it's men in one box it's god in the other box which box does he put christ in Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. He's not merely a man. Christ is fully divine. So that's the one who gave his life for us. Why did he do it? Look over at chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, brother or sister in Christ, Jesus gave himself for you because he loves you. Jesus, who is fully God, gave his life on the cross because he loved you. I think that's probably the most incredible sentence we will ever hear. There's different ways to say it, but when you just sum it up and think about it, there's probably no sentiment that's that's more significant than that. There's probably no sentence that's more incredible than that. Jesus, who is fully God, gave his life on the cross because he loved you. But here's what's, what's sometimes easy for us to forget. So I trust that, that we're, all, we're all together now. We understand the things that Paul has been talking about, about the gospel. Understand it. But here's what sometimes is, is easy for us to forget. In paying for our sins, Jesus rescued us from hell, right? He rescued us from God's wrath and punishment, no doubt. I think most of us understand that, but he's also rescued us from this world. He hasn't just rescued us from hell, he's also rescued us from this world. This is Paul's exact point in verse four. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. So Jesus gave himself on the cross to deliver you from this present evil age. Okay, so, so you might be able to imagine, but what does Paul mean by that, this present evil age? Well, the New Testament has a timeline for everything that happens. From Jesus' ascension to be with the Father that we read about and heard proclaimed last Sunday, the end of the Gospel of Luke. So from his ascension all the way into eternity, there's a timeline for that the Bible gives us. It's only two parts. There's this age, and then there's the age to come. Beautifully simple, right? There's this age, and then there's the age to come. Listen to how Jesus says it, Luke 18, verse 29. There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So that's the chronology the Bible gives us. We are in this age currently, this earthly life, and then there's coming an age to come, which is heaven the new heavens and the new earth. Now look again at how Paul characterizes this age. Middle of verse four, the present evil age. So our current world is evil, the way that Paul sums it up. Flip over a few pages to Ephesians. Let's see the more extended description Paul gives us there. It'll be helpful for us, I think. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through two. He's talking about this world. This is how he characterizes it in Ephesians. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this world is is the one that's marked by Satan being in charge. The way Paul says it here in Ephesians, he's the prince of the power of the air. So the air that we breathe, right, everything about this world, just being out in this world, who's in charge of this world? Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. The way 2 Corinthians says it, he's the God of this world. So, so this world, it's, it's marked by mankind's disobedience to God and by mankind doing what Satan wants mankind to do. So, so our world is one in which sinful human nature and Satan team up to produce a life of rebellion against God. Boiled down, that's what our culture is. That's what our world is. It's what it's always been. It's what it always will be. And and throughout the book of Galatians, Paul's gonna point out two broad categories in which mankind rebels against God. So again, we're thinking about how evil the world is, how bad the world is. Paul's gonna give two specific categories in the book of Galatians. First of all, the world rebels in terms of conduct. Paul calls it the works of the flesh. He he gives us a list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. This is how the world can be summed up. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay, there's some, some themes that emerge there. There's some categories you see in that passage. So we, we live in a world that, that pursues sexual pleasure completely irrespective of what the Lord thinks, right? You read this list, you walk away seeing that really clearly. You look at the culture around us, see it really clearly. We live in a world that pursues sexual pleasure completely irrespective of what the Lord thinks about that. It's also a world that worships all sorts of things other than God. It's all sorts of idolatry all around us. It's a, it's a world that's marked by dissension and envy and angry fighting and division. Okay, so with that in mind, it's, it's easy to see why Paul calls it this evil age, isn't it? This age is evil. This world around us is evil. So that's kind of one category, the works of the flesh. But, but second, the book of Galatians is going to show us the world also rebels against God in terms of the message of salvation. That's another way that the world is evil it rejects God's message of salvation in this way. Sinful man thinks he can achieve salvation for himself by his own moral efforts and his own religious ceremonies. So in other words, most sinners think they can do enough to win God's approval. And you can talk to non-believers and find that out really quickly. If you remember being a non-Christian, that's probably what you thought. That's certainly what I thought. I remember Christians saying to me, Scott, why do you, so let's say you die, Scott, and you're standing in heaven. Why would you tell the Lord to let you in? What would the reason be why God would let you in? And my answer was probably pretty typical for most non-Christians. I said, well, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person, right? So what I was assuming was "I've, I've done good enough. I've lived a life good enough to where God should let me in, right? I deserve God's approval. Look at how Paul says it a page over in chapter four, verse nine. He's talking about the way the world is completely blind in this area about salvation. Chapter four, verse nine, he says, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Okay, so what's he talking about here? He's telling christians to not revert back to the way the world thinks about salvation the way the world thinks about winning god's approval and the specific example he gives he's talking about the religious holidays under the old covenant that false teachers said needed to be observed for god to be pleased with you to secure god's blessing and and we see this in the world around us all the time so so sinful man will always be drawn to the idea of holy places and holy times and holy practices. That's because our sinful flesh wants to justify ourselves. We want to do enough good to where God will consider us approved. He'll consider us holy. Mankind will always be drawn to the idea of holy places and holy times and holy practices. He'll always be drawn to think a particular season should be set apart as religiously significant and help win God's approval. He'll be drawn to think that a room in a church is holier than other rooms. He'll be drawn to think that that going through certain symbolic activities makes him better off in God's eyes. But see, there's nothing that can be done in this life to make sinful people justified. There's nothing we can do to win God's approval, but because we're sinners, it's only faith alone in Christ alone that does that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, that's the good news of the gospel is that it's not about you working hard to try to achieve God's approval. No, it's about trusting in Christ who lived a perfect life, fully pleasing to God. And when we trust in him alone, we're united to Christ. And then God is as pleased with us, even though we're sinners, he's as pleased with us as he is with his perfect son. And that's the good news of the gospel. If if as a non-Christian, you want to talk more about that, Grab me or one of the other pastors. Send me an email. My email address is on the back of the worship guide there at the bottom. And we can talk about the good news of the gospel. So, so this is the age we're living in. So we're surrounded by a world that's rebelling against God's commands left and right, and yet they think they're good enough to secure God's approval. Isn't that horrible, the combination of those two things? If it was one or the other, that'd be something. But it's both of them. The world rejects God's commands left and right, and yet the world thinks it's good enough to get God's approval. It's easy to see why Paul calls this an evil age. And that's the age that we're living in. It's the age that's, that's always been here since Genesis 3. It's the age that will continue until Christ returns. And we know that we as Christians will be tempted to pursue those things in this age. We're tempted to pursue the works of the flesh, We know that because in Galatians 5, Paul's going to have to tell us, don't do these things. If we weren't tempted by it, he wouldn't have to tell us that. No, he knows we'll be tempted by it. And we're tempted to think salvation comes at least in part by our good works. At least we live that way sometimes. We know that because chapter 2 through 6 is just a sustained argument where Paul's telling us to not do that, even as Christians. So we're in an evil world. We're tempted by that evil world. So hopefully you can see What a bad place this is for a Christian. This world is not a fit place for the Christian. That horrible combination of rebellion against God's commands and pride that one's good enough for his approval, that's a bad place for us. So now with all that in mind, a good question to ask yourself is, do I want to be rescued from it? So as you hear all that about how this world is an unfit place for God's children, it's not a good place for us. The question is, do I want to be rescued from it? In verse 4, Paul says part of the good news of the gospel is that one day we'll be fully delivered from this present evil age. So do you want to be delivered? Marie and I have been watching the show. Crazy, this is probably 20 years ago now when the show first came out. But but it's about a group of people that get stranded on an island, they have to try to survive, and then they're trying to get rescued. Well, there ends up being this split among the group where some want to be rescued and some decide that they just want to stay on the islands. Because they've determined that life on that island is better for them, better for them than life on the mainland would be. So, so is that you? Do you feel like as you've you, as you've lived on this island longer and longer, that you've kind of become accustomed to it? that you kind of like it, that you might want to, to stay here? Are you like Demas? You might remember that name. It's a guy that shows up in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, who we're told is in love with this present world. Or think about it this way. If God offered you the option of living forever, eternal life in this world, would you take it? Would you at least be tempted to take it? Would you at least be tempted to think, yeah, it's probably not as good as heaven but it's not that bad eternal life in this world brothers and sisters what the lord is telling us in verse 4 is that even eternal life in this present world would not be good enough this age is evil and because of that christ has purchased our ticket out of here that word you see there in verse 4 deliver it's the same word jesus uses when he says If your right hand or your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's the same word. One day the Lord is going to tear us out of this world. You see sort of the immediacy of that verb. He's going to tear us out. It's like a parent scooping up their child when they sense they're in danger. That's what the Lord is going to do for us one day. He's going to rescue us from this world. So so the upshot for us, remember that you need rescuing. Remember that you need rescuing. So be like God in this way. See that this world is is evil. But as we close, you, you can take heart because it will certainly happen. Your rescue is certain because among other reasons, the end of verse four says, it's according to the will of our God and Father, and God's will always comes to pass. And then instead of being in the middle of a sinful world and rebellion against God, you'll be with God for all eternity. You'll you'll be with the one who verse five says, deserves the glory forever and ever. And in eternity, as you're staring at the, the beauty and the greatness of God, it will be instantly clear how crazy it was to ever entertain the thought of wanting to stay in this life a minute longer than we have to. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's your word. We, we understand that there's no life, there's no hope for us if, if the Bible in front of us is just a, a, a group of documents written by men f- from their own minds and opinions and inclinations. We're so thankful, Father, it's not that. We're so thankful instead, this word is your word. So these are the thoughts and opinions and inclinations of the unchanging eternal God of the universe. Father, we're so thankful for that. And we're so thankful for the message that you have in your word the good news of the gospel father we pray that we would see that life with you for all eternity through christ is infinitely better than what this world has to offer and in particular father we pray that you would help us to see that this age is an evil age that you would help us to turn from it father through the power of your spirit and most of all father as this passage goes that we would see that we need rescue from it and that that rescue is coming for our good and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.